there are, there are some big ideas in Christianity that are sometimes hard to grasp. But when we see a picture of it, we can understand it a little bit better. This morning's text does that for us. And in this morning's text, we see three pictures of, of doctrines or concepts within, within the Christian faith. The first is a picture of unbelief. And we see that in Esau. The second is a picture of wisdom. And we see that with Rebekah. And the third is a picture of repentance. And so what we're going to do this morning is just kind of take these three different doctrines as uh, many lessons. So this will be sort of three lessons as we look to this morning's text. There is the, the, the underlying theme going through this is that this is how Jacob gets to Paddan Aram, to where he has his four wives and 12 children who will become the children of Israel. So this is sort of one of those in-between lessons, but it's not something that we should overlook because in this passage, like I said, we will see things that help us to understand ourselves and our own faith a little bit better. So we're going to look at these three lessons in order. Esau, the first. As we did last week, let's begin here with Esau. He is our picture of unbelief. Esau is not a man of faith. He's a man of the world. And the evidence we've seen for that, that worldliness in Esau, as we've studied the book of Genesis, is one we saw at, at the beginning of his story, that he is more concerned with worldly pleasures than eternal promises. So think back to when he gave his birthright away for that bowl of soup. He preferred a bowl of lentils over and against the birthright, which was the promises from God for the land that would one day also uh, lead to the Messiah. So that's, he, he's concerned with worldly pleasures over eternal promises. The second mark of worldliness in Esau is that he follows the world's patterns. And we see this with the way that he marries uh, multiple wives rather than one. God's design for marriage is one man, one woman, and Esau follows that worldly city design that we saw with Cain's offspring. And so he marries two wives. And in that marriage, uh, in those marriages, we see a third mark of worldliness. He prefers Hittite women who are Canaanites. And that shows us that he has no consideration for the proclamation of God that those of that line, Canaan's line, are cursed. And at the root of it all, all of this that we're seeing, all of these fruits of unbelief, all of them have to do with hearing and understanding the things of the Lord. That's at the heart of it. Does Esau consider what the Lord has done and what the Lord has promised? He hasn't. He doesn't. Esau's line of vision only extends below the horizon, below the skies. His line of vision only extends to the things of the world. That's all he can see. He's blind to the things of God. Another way to say that is that Esau doesn't have faith. 
He doesn't believe that God's promises will come to pass. He has no regard for the Lord. And stemming from his lack of faith in God's word, because he doesn't believe in God's word, he's ruled by the desires of the flesh. This is one of those biblical concepts we see come up again and again and again. And the most obvious place that we see this in Esau's life is when he explodes in anger. So Jacob has tricked Esau. Granted, that wasn't fair. He tricked Esau out of the blessing, and Esau emotionally loses it. And he vows to kill him. Esau hated Jacob, is what verse 41 says. We're meant to see here, as we look at Esau, we're meant to see a parallel. As we're reading Genesis carefully, we're meant to see a parallel between Esau here and Cain from back in Genesis chapter 4. In the Cain and Abel story, Abel, the younger of the two brothers, brought a sacrifice to the Lord from the flocks, and the Lord accepted it. And then Cain, the older brother, brought a sacrifice from the ground, and the Lord rejected it. And then Cain's heart was revealed, right? Cain became bitter and jealous toward Abel. The Lord spoke and warned Cain about his anger, but Cain had no regard for the word of the Lord, and he called Abel out in the field and he killed him. Now, in, the, in, in this story, in Jacob and Esau's story, Jacob, the younger brother, brings a meal from the flocks to his father, and his father accepts it. Sounds familiar, right? Esau, the older brother, the man of the field, brings a meal from the field, but his father has already been satisfied, and he's already given the blessing to Jacob. And so he rejects Esau's offering. And just like Cain, Esau reveals his heart. He becomes bitter and jealous. He becomes enraged, and he makes plans to kill his brother. Now, the interesting difference between these stories is that in Cain's case, the Lord goes to Cain, tells him where his anger will lead. But in Esau's case, the mother, Rebekah, hears of Esau's anger, and she works to get Jacob out of danger. We're talking about Rebekah's role here and her wisdom in a moment. But in the meantime, what do we make of Esau's anger? The author, Moses, along with the Holy Spirit here, is showing us that Esau's anger is Cain-like. It's a worldly, rageful anger that controls Esau. He's given himself over to it. And the Bible teaches that anger like that is not consistent with those who are of the faith. So we've already seen he's not believing the Lord. Now he's showing fruits of that unbelief with this, this, this rage. Jesus taught us that hating your brother is to murder him. John tells us in 1 John that everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. That is, he's not living in the hope of the gospel. Galatians 5 names enmity and strife and jealousy and fits of anger and rivalries and dissensions and divisions and envy. All of that is Esau, isn't it? All of that. All of these things, Paul says in Galatians, are characteristics of the flesh, and those who are ruled by these vices, these emotions, he says, won't inherit the kingdom of God. And Esau has all of that. In our study of James, before Christmas, we saw in James chapter 3 that if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, this is not the wisdom that comes down from above. This is earthly, unspiritual, demonic, James calls it. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. So, with that brief summary of the New Testament teaching about anger, 
Esau is not an inheritor of the kingdom. He's not hoping in the promises and the evidence of his worldliness is that he's being ruled by that emotion. He's being ruled by the flesh. But here's the thing. And some of you who might tend towards anger already starting to defend yourselves. I can kind of feel it from up here. Because you're thinking, oh, hold on a minute. Okay, I get it. Anger, worldliness. Yeah, but what about Jacob? Right? Jacob is not any better, is he? We've already seen Jacob lie and scheme and cheat and deceive. And Esau reminded us in last week's text, that's his name. That, that's Jacob's name. His name is Cheater. Just as Esau's sins show his worldliness, you could just as well make the argument that Jacob's sins show his worldliness. In fact, in a list of people bound for hell in in Revelation 28, liars like Jacob are put right alongside murderers. Listen to this. Revelation 21.8, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And we saw last week, Jacob is a sinner through and through. And yet, Jacob does inherit the kingdom. He receives the inheritance from the Father. He receives the blessing. So what gives? And and, and, and Jacob, to add to all of that, Jacob is going to have children with not just three women, but four women. So it's not like Jacob's conjugal decisions are any different than Esau's, right? So you, you could say they're worse. But here's the issue. And this is crucial to understanding the grace of God, which is what Genesis is about. This is not, God's grace is not understood by comparing who has the most sins or the worst sins. Esau's sin shows his worldliness, but more than that, his sin shows his faithlessness. Like I said, fundamentally, he doesn't believe the word of God. And because he doesn't believe in the faithfulness of God, he cannot live in the hope of God. He cannot walk in faith. And if you're not walking in faith, you're walking according to the flesh. And so that's where Esau is. He's ruled by the flesh. Now, Jacob, on the other hand, despite his sin, by the grace of God, Jacob believes. He doesn't have a complete understanding yet. He doesn't understand fully the, the, the significance of the promises of God. He definitely doesn't understand the grace of God. We're going to see him... Uh, very soon make a deal with God in his own heart that only reveals how little of God's grace he, he understands. But at the core of it, even at this point in the story, Jacob knows that God's promises are, are valuable. He believes that they're true. He knows that God will fulfill his promises, that God is faithful. What he doesn't know is that through trusting in God's promises, Jacob is going to undergo a transformation. Jacob's story, in large part, is about his transformation. In fact, we're going to see again and again, Jacob the deceiver be deceived. We're going to see him, as the cheater, be cheated. 
Nearly every character flaw, every sin that dwells in Jacob now will at some point in the story be used against him. And through it all, as Jacob understands more and more that the blessing he has received is all the grace of God, his sanctification more and more will reflect his calling. So that's Jacob, and that's why we can understand that Jacob does receive the inheritance, even though he's a liar now. But Esau doesn't have that faith. In fact, even as we see in our text, Isaac, the father, he's going to repent, and he's wholeheartedly going to bless the one whom God said to bless. Esau can't do it. He can't repent. He can't turn from who he is. He can't repent because he doesn't know the Lord. Built into the very idea of repentance is a knowledge that God is gracious and merciful and will forgive through, one day, the sacrifice of the promised son, the Messiah. Esau doesn't know the Lord, though. He doesn't believe in God's faithfulness to his word. He doesn't trust that there will be a Messiah. And so he can't repent. Why turn to God if there is no acceptance in God? That doesn't, it's, it's, doesn't mean anything. It's, 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 it's just gibberish. So in Esau, what we see instead of godly faith... Instead of repentance, what we see with Esau is that he doubles down on self-striving. Because he doesn't believe in the sacrifice that is to come in Christ. Esau's only choice is to attempt to merit acceptance on his own. And what we see with Esau is that the acceptance he wants, because he's not seeking the acceptance of the Lord, is the acceptance of Isaac. Remember, his eyes are set on worldly things. And the highest thing in the world to him is his dad. He desires to please his father more than he desires to please the Lord. Look at Genesis 28. This is the end of our text, but the second part of Esau's story. So 28 verse 6. So Esau sees, Esau saw, I don't like saying that. Esau sees that Isaac had blessed Jacob, and he sent him away to Padanaram to take a wife, and that, that he, he directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Esau hears that. He's like, I've, I've married Canaanite women, right? And, and, and then he sees Jacob obeyed his father and his mother, and he went to Padanaram, and he kind of is watching the golden child there at that moment. Everything has has turned. It was Esau is loved by Isaac and Jacob was loved by Rebekah. But here, as, as the boy is sent away, there's sort of a, a reunion between Rebekah and Isaac, and they are glowing over this boy Jacob as they send him away. And Esau sees that. Esau, verse 8 says, So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please his father, He's like, well, I've got to do something to please dad. So he goes to Ishmael and took as his wife, besides the two wives he already has, Canaanite women, he takes Mahaloth, the daughter of Ishmael. Look at Esau's motivation here. Look at what motivates everything he does. When he saw that those, his, the Canaanite women, which is to say his own wives, does not, do not please his father, 
Then he says, well, I'm going to do something to please Dad. And he goes to marry an Ishmaelite. His, his desire, his innermost need is to please his father and get the blessing. And what do you see happening? Esau still believes, after all of this, he still believes that the blessing comes from Isaac, not the Lord. So he thinks, I know what I'll do. I'll go to my father's side of the family, to his half-brother Ishmael. If I marry one of Ishmael's daughters, dad will be happy. Then he'll bless me. Yet again, Esau's not thinking about what the Lord has decreed, is he? He's not thinking about God's blessings. He's not thinking about God's curses. He's not thinking about God's promises of the future. He's thinking only according to worldly principles. There's something I'm supposed to do, and I can get the blessing. There's got to be something I can do to get the inheritance. Because he has his eyes set on this worldly horizon, everything he does, he does by human effort and human striving. He desperately wants the blessing from his father. He wants the benefits of the promises of God, but not the promises of God, just the benefits. So he tries to get it by mimicking what Jacob is doing. He doesn't understand. He doesn't understand that acceptance before the Lord is far better than acceptance by Isaac. He doesn't understand that acceptance before the Lord only comes through trusting in the Lord and his promises. Do you see the problem here? I'm, I'm hoping that you're kind of putting these things together. Let me, let me just, as an aside, as a little parenthesis here, because this isn't the point of the text, but there are parents in this room, lots of them, old and young, parents, your kids will long for your acceptance, just as Esau is longing for Isaac's acceptance. One of the most important things that you can do to teach them the gospel is show those children of yours that your acceptance of them comes by virtue of their belonging to you, not by something that they must do. If they think they have to jump through hoops or behave or do something in order to get your blessing or your acceptance or your love, then they're going to think those same things about God. And you will distort the gospel in a deadly way. Secondly, though, also to parents, as wonderful as it is to have your kids love you, and that feels good, show them that God's love is greater. Redirect that longing that they have for your acceptance and show them that that longing is rooted in their longing for peace with God. Okay? Just as you watch Isaac's failure with Esau in Esau's devastating life, just remember those things and let that be a little parenting lesson for you. Now, parenting advice aside, back to the, 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 the movement in the text, the point of the text. This is what we're seeing here from Esau. Unless you have faith, unless you truly believe that God's word is true, that he has sent the promised Christ, that the Christ is the one and only Savior, then nothing else matters. Christianity is not about keeping up appearances. It's not about mimicking other Christians. 
doing things Christians do, putting yourself around Christians, showing up to church, reading the Bible. It's not about even a good marriage or raising your kids right or the right career. Christianity is not even about the avoidance of sin. It's not about any of those externals. It's a matter of the heart. Do you or don't you believe that Jesus is the only way to peace with God? That's the key issue. God has decreed that Jacob received the blessing, which means that the Messiah, Jesus Christ, will, will come through Jacob's line. This was all of God's doing, all of his grace toward Jacob. Now Esau can accept that, and he can accept that by God's decree, those who bless Jacob are blessed, and those who curse Jacob are cursed, and he can repent, and he can submit to God, and bless his brother Jacob, and so enter into the promise with him, or he can continue on his course of willful, spiteful unbelief. Which is what he does, isn't it? He continues on in unbelief and through striving by his own power to get a blessing from his father, his, his, his last hope in life, he makes his situation all the worse. He marries an Ishmaelite and further reveals where his heart is. Friends, if you see yourself this morning As like Esau, if you see in your heart the heart of Esau, the only thing you can do this morning is accept that salvation is not in you. It's in Christ. Acceptance before God is not in you. It's all in Christ. So, receive Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, the offspring of the promise through the line of Jacob, and receive the blessing from God that is bound up in Christ. We see this, this is displayed in conversion through baptism. In baptism, we go under the water, die to the world. We die to our striving for acceptance. We, we die to our scheming. We die to our murderous rage. We die to our rebellion against God and our hatred of his word. All of that is taken on by Jesus, nailed to the cross, and we come up out of the water clean, unified with Christ. If you are an Esau... You don't have to stay in Esau. There is good news around the corner, even in Genesis, for Esau. So let's look now to Rebecca, now that she's back. <laughs> Rebecca is of the faith. Rebecca trusts in the word of God, and, and she believes that Jacob is the one through whom the promises will flow. All right, so you have Esau, doesn't believe any of those things. And then in our second lesson, we have Rebecca, who believes all of those things. And because she believes all of what God has said, that the promises are going to go through Jacob, when Jacob's life is in danger, she seeks to protect him. That's what, that's the, that's what you see her doing in this, in this text. Rebecca's faith is shown when she hears of Esau's plan to kill Jacob. Now, now the text doesn't tell us how she caught wind of this, does it? which is odd. Usually Genesis is very, very detailed, but not here. So she heard of it. 
It doesn't say how she got wind of the news. And you know, in fact, because of the, the, the mystery here, early church fathers surmised that it was the Lord who revealed this to Rebecca, which is interesting. But I think that if he had, the text would say he did. But the text doesn't say that. Regardless, though, it, it, isn't it interesting that whoever it is that brought this news of Esau's scheme, his plan to kill his brother, whoever, whoever did this and brought it to Rebecca, isn't it interesting that they went to Rebecca? Did you think about that? She's not the head of the household. But they went to Rebecca instead of Isaac. It seems that faithful Rebecca is the one who is trusted to do something about dangers like this. And Isaac, maybe not so much. So, so Rebecca hears of the threat, and because she knows Esau, she knows his rage, she knows his worldliness and his faithlessness, and perhaps because she also knows the story of Cain and Abel, she goes to Jacob and tells him the news, tells him the danger he's in, and gives him a way of escape. Then she goes to Isaac, now, if, if Rebecca's approach to Jacob shows her, shows her faith, it is the way that she approaches Isaac where we see her wisdom, her shrewdness. Notice in, in Rebecca's words to Isaac that we never see her tell him about Esau's plan. Strange, isn't it? We can only speculate as to why that is. Maybe she believes that if she tells Isaac that Esau plans to kill Jacob, that Isaac would allow it to happen because he was upset by the blessing incident. Maybe she believes Isaac won't believe her. Maybe, maybe he, he won't believe that his favorite son Esau would ever do such a thing. We also know from, from chapter 27 that he is pretty old and frail at this point. Isaac believes himself to be near death. Esau knows that the, the days of mourning for my father are approaching, right? So, so everybody in the family thinks that Isaac is about to die. So maybe Rebecca thinks that heartbreaking news like this about his favorite son would just do him in. And that would be the end of Isaac. He's already had a really rough couple of days. So she doesn't want to shake him up anymore. Either way, Rebecca doesn't tell Isaac the entire truth. She doesn't tell Isaac about Esau's murderous plot. Now, before we go any further with Rebecca, I want to give a disclaimer, okay? Wives, do not look to Rebecca as an example of how to interact with your husbands. 999 out of 1,000 scenarios that I could think of, if one of your sons is trying to kill his little brother, that's probably something your husband should know about. So don't look to Rebecca as an exemplar of when to share or not share information with your husband. Rebecca's situation is really unique. I, that's, that's, it's just unique. Rebecca's situation is unique. She is the, the one who was first entrusted with the knowledge that the promises of God to Abraham are meant to go to Jacob, right? The, the Lord told Rebecca. And, and we have to remember, this is not, oh, Jacob's going to get the golden ring, no, this is, Jacob is the one through whom the salvation of the entire world will come. And the ancient prophecy is that the offspring of the serpent would always be trying to destroy the offspring of the woman through whom the promises of God would come. 
So, so you have to think of, Jay, of Rebecca more as a soldier on a cosmic battlefield than as just a wife to Isaac. Rebecca has been entrusted with the gospel, and she aims to protect it. So please don't think of this story between Rebecca and Isaac as a marriage lesson. Rather, think of Rebecca as an example for us as Christians of what it means to be as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. Remember in Matthew 10 when Jesus entrusted his disciples with the knowledge that he was the Messiah, the fulfillment of the promises to Abraham, Jesus told his disciples, I'm sending you out as sheep among what? Among wolves. They're going to try to kill you. They want to put an end to this gospel message. So you must be as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. Sheep are defenseless against wolves. Rebecca, likewise, is defenseless against Esau, the skilled master hunter. She's got to figure out a way to get Jacob, the blessed one of God, the one who holds the promises of God, the salvation of the world. She's got to figure out a way to get him away from the wolf. And so she uses wisdom to do it. Her aim is to help Isaac do what is right by God. So she gives Isaac the information she believes will prompt him in that direction. And she doesn't give him the information that she believes would be a distraction to him. And here's how she does it. We all know by now that Isaac has passed the blessing on to Jacob, that very important blessing. And then he said, yes, and he shall be blessed. It is secure in Jacob. Now, in order for Jacob to, to be fruitful and multiply in accordance with that blessing, he's going to need what? He needs a wife. Oddly enough, Jacob isn't married. He's 77, and he's still single. Now, how do we know that he's 77? Well, if you fast forward to later on in Genesis, and then you hit rewind, Jacob is going to move to Egypt when he's 130 years old. His son Joseph, in that same episode, is 39 years old. 130-year-old father Jacob minus 39-year-old son Joseph means Jacob was 91 when Joseph was born. We also know that Joseph was born in about the 14th year of Jacob's time in Paddan Aram with Laban and Leah and Rachel and their maidservants. So, so, so 91 take away 14 years before Joseph's birth puts Jacob at about 77 when he leaves Canaan for Paddan Aram. And that gets us back to our text. So Jacob is a 77-year-old bachelor living in his mom's basement. And now suddenly, suddenly he has this urgency to find a wife and to have children in order to fulfill the, the, the promises God made to Abraham and pass the blessing on to the next generation. Now, how has this happened? Isaac has more or less dropped the ball on what is a key element in parenting. He hasn't done so well when it comes to marrying off his sons, has he? His father, so Isaac's dad, Abraham, sent his most trusted servant to retrieve a godly wife for Isaac when Isaac was 40. When Esau turned 40, what happened? Nothing. And so what did he do? He didn't receive any help from his father finding a wife, so on his own initiative, he went and found Canaanite wives, which have caused a whole lot of trouble. Meanwhile, Isaac has completely ignored Jacob and allowed him to just continue in singleness for 77 years. But it's not too late. So parents who have, have, 
have failed in this regard, like Isaac, it's not too late. You're about to see things turn for the better. And, and, and who is the, the impetus for that? It's Rebecca. Shrewd Rebecca takes this looming marriage situation and uses it, uses it as leverage to solve the murderous Esau problem. In her wisdom and in her faith, Rebecca knows that, that Jacob can't take a Hittite wife from the line of Canaan because they're cursed, nor can he take an Egyptian wife, as Ishmael did, from the line of Ham because they're cursed. Noah gave the blessing to Shem. So Jacob has got to have a Shemite wife. Rebecca gets it. She understands the story of redemption. She understands and believes God's blessings and curses. So she, she, she's got the, the faith right, but she also understands her husband. She understands how Isaac thinks. She knows if she pre- presents Jacob going to Uncle Laban as her idea, it would be seen as disrespectful and a power play, and he probably won't go with it. So respectfully, look what she does. She, she gives the, the needy, weak wife performance. Now, we all know that Rebecca is not a weak wife. She's not a weak woman. She's not one to just roll over and give up. She's a courageous woman who trusts in the Lord. Rebecca, as a teenager, journeyed... <laughs> that was a good one. She journeyed into the unknown wilderness... Uh, with a stranger, right? So when, when, when Abraham's servant went to get Rebecca for Isaac, she didn't know the guy, but she goes with him, leaves her family, leaves everything she knows with a stranger just because he said, I've got a husband for you. And it, and, it was, and it was Rebecca's plan and Rebecca's strategy that seized the blessing for Jacob. Rebecca is tough as nails, but to protect Jacob, In her wisdom, she appeals to Isaac's love for her, his role as husband, his role as protector for her. Notice that. Look look at what she does in verse 46. Here's her, her, her play. I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? She's so dramatic. Housewives of Canaan. Now, now, before you say she's being manipulative, because you could make that play, remember what is at stake. There is a cosmic war raging against the offspring of the woman. Jacob's life is in danger, and the blessing to Abraham now belongs to Jacob. There is urgency here to protect him. In order to protect the offspring of the promise, Rebecca has to do something. She has to do something while maintaining respect towards Isaac. He's the head of the household. He's got to make this decision. But notice also, she's also protecting Esau. Did you notice when when Rebecca was was talking to Jacob, she said that he has to leave, and then should I lose you both in one day? Rebecca understood that if Esau kills Jacob, then Esau will come under judgment. He'll either be killed or to be sent away in, in exile forever like Cain was. So Rebecca's move to protect Jacob is also a peacemaking move to protect Esau from himself. You see the wisdom in Rebecca's plan here? Rebecca is as wise as a serpent in that she is three moves ahead of everyone else. But she also maintains her, her dove-like innocence by, by avoiding any wrongdoing. 
Rebecca, for us as Christians, she is our example of how to guard the gospel when the gospel is under attack. This, this is, by, by the providence of God, not something that we are daily in danger of. But Christians, Christians living in places where it is illegal to worship Jesus have Rebecca as their exemplar. And if we are ever in this sort of situation where the gospel is constantly under threat, where the church is constantly under threat, let's remind me, because it will probably happen, remind me and let's come back to Rebecca and see what else we can learn from her. Finally, though, let's look to Isaac. We are safe from martyrdom for now, but there is something that we can do and learn from every day when we look to Isaac, who is our third lesson this morning. As Christians, we daily repent and turn to Christ. And Isaac is an example of that for us. Hebrews chapter 11, in that great chapter of faith, says of Isaac, Isaac, by faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. And we read chapter 27, right? And it didn't seem like he did that by faith. But, but, but Hebrews 11 is, is, is really showing us Isaac's purpose in the Scriptures. That is, he's, what he's known for. He is the in-between. His, his one job between Abraham and Jacob is to pass the blessing. And at the beginning of chapter 7, our text last week, it appeared Isaac was going to fail in passing the blessing. He was not acting according to faith. Isaac was secretly going to give the blessing to Esau instead of Jacob. But something happens. Something happens between the beginning of chapter 27 and the beginning of chapter 28, our text this morning. Isaac changes. He shifts. Or we could say he repents. Isaac intended in his heart to disobey God. He took steps toward that disobedience. But when God in his providence through the scheming of Rebekah and Jacob, when God foiled Isaac's plan, Isaac realized his foolishness. The moment of crisis happens back in chapter 27 when Jacob has just received the blessing and he leaves the tent and in comes Esau. In Genesis 27, 32 is where we see this. His father Isaac said to him, who are you? Esau's just come in. Jacob just left. And he answered, I'm your son, your firstborn Esau. Then Isaac trembled very violently said, who is it then that hunted game and brought it to me, and I ate it before you came, and I blessed him? Yes, and he shall be blessed. That's, that's, that's the crisis moment. Commentator Derek Kidner says that what's happening at that moment of trembling is that Isaac realized he has been fighting against God this whole time, and his shaking, his violent trembling shows his, his fear of what's to come. He's like, he's like a kid who snuck out at night, and he came home thinking he got away with it, opens the door, and there's Dad standing right there. So when Isaac then says about Jacob, yes, and he shall be blessed, Isaac is accepting defeat. The Lord has confronted Isaac's rebellion, and Isaac accepts that the Lord is faithful to his own word, that God's word is greater than Isaac's, and he's been a fool. 
That's the aha moment for Isaac that sets him towards repentance. We see the the full fruit of repentance in our passage in chapter 28. Notice how Isaac blesses Jacob when he's sending him away. Look at verse 1. Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Probably should have given this advice 60 years ago, but, but better late than never. Arise, go to Paddan Aram to the house of Bethuel, your, father's, or your mother's father, and take as your wife from there, one of the daughters of Laban. So, so Isaac is here at that moment, and in verse 1, he's taking ownership of his role as the carrier of the promise. He knows the promises of God have to continue, and he's sending Jacob off with those promises to find a wife from the line of Shem, line of Eber, from the, from the same family that Abraham comes from. And he wholeheartedly gives that blessing to Jacob, the one whom God has chosen. And look at the blessing that he gives. Look at verse 3. He says, God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. So, so he's invoking, Isaac is invoking the Lord upon Jacob. May God Almighty bless you. No longer is Isaac trying to do this in his own power. In his, in his repentance, he's been humbled and he realizes he's just a conduit for God's work. That's all he is. And he's happy to take that role now. And the blessing he gives is an important blessing. It's that, that ancient be fruitful and multiply blessing that God gave to Adam and then to Noah and then to Shem and then to Abraham and then to Isaac. But Isaac adds to it that you may become a company of peoples. We haven't seen that yet. That word for company is the word that later is translated as synagogue, which is later becomes ecclesia or the church in the New Testament. And when he says peoples, company of peoples, he's using the word for the nations. And in the Old Testament, the fulfillment of the blessing, this blessing, are the various tribes of peoples that make up the nation of Israel. In the New Testament, this has a greater fulfillment in the people from every tongue and tribe and nation that make up the people of God, the church. Isaac here finally gets it, doesn't he? He has realized his role as the conduit, the the prophet who brings these blessings to to the world. And Isaac continues, may he, God, he's still passing the Lord's blessing on, may God give the blessing of Abraham to you and your offspring with you that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. This, here, this is why Hebrews 11 says Isaac's invocation of the blessing is by faith. Isaac believes that God will get Jacob safely to Paddan Aram, that he will provide a wife for Jacob, that he will provide children for Jacob, that he will bring Jacob back to the land, that Jacob will live in the land as a stranger, that one day Jacob's offspring will inherit the land. All of that God will do because God promised to do that. Amen. That's faith. That's faith. Isaac, Isaac already believed that God was powerful. Now he has been reminded that God is all powerful. The Lord is not just Elohim, as Isaac said in that contrived blessing. He is El Shaddai, God Almighty. He is greater than the scheming of man. And he will bring his Messiah through Jacob's offspring no matter what man or devil attempts to thwart him. 
And that faith, Isaac's faith, comes alongside at the same time of the Lord leading Isaac to repentance. These aren't separate ideas. Isaac has received the Lord's correction. He has turned from his scheming, and now Isaac is fully living out God's call on him as the chosen recipient of the blessing. He's now passing it on faithfully to Jacob. I want you to see the differences between Esau and Isaac here. When Isaac realized that the Lord has confronted his rebellion, Isaac repents and willfully submits to the Lord. Esau, though, never seems to realize that the Lord is even at work in all of this. Esau never changes course. Isaac, stricken by godly grief, trembles violently when he realizes what he's done. And he repents. He turns from his sin towards the Lord, and he begins to walk in obedience with the Lord. Isaac, friends, Isaac is our model here. Every day, every day, you're going to act out of unbelief the same way that Isaac did. You're going to act as though God doesn't know what he's talking about. And you do. There will be times when you think that God is offering you in Christ something inferior to what you can gain on your own, something from the world, what you can accomplish or you can grab by your wit or by your strength or by your persistence or by your beauty or your scheming or good business practices or whatever it is. Like Isaac, you may even secretly scheme and imagine that God is not aware of what you're doing. That you're getting away with something. But here's the thing. Here's the beauty of the gospel and God's love towards us. If you're a Christian, if you have been given the Spirit, then He will show you at that moment in your deepest foolishness, He will reveal to you your foolishness and your sin. And when He does... Friends, you need to realize this is a kindness of the Lord. This is the love of God towards you. The Lord, in his love and his mercy toward Isaac, led him to see his sin so that Isaac could repent. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Gracious is the discipline of the Father. The Spirit revealing your sin to you is not condemnation. Let me say that again. The Spirit revealing your sin to you is not condemnation. It is not meant to destroy you. It's meant to remind you that your flesh belongs on the cross with King Jesus and that you have been raised with him because you belong to him. So brothers and sisters who know the kindness of the Lord in Christ Jesus, understand that that repentance is not just a once-in-a-lifetime occasion. Rather, it is an ordinary, normal aspect of life in Christ. Isaac was a believer in the promises of God, going all the way back to his boyhood. Read again the story of the sacrifice on Mount Moriah, if you need that reminder. Isaac knows the Lord, but in his flesh, he, he's pulling away. He's pulled away. He's turned from the Lord. And in the flesh, we're going to pull away from Christ. Even though we've been born again and baptized into Christ, the world will pull us away. But know, know that repentance, turning from the Lord back into your inseparable union with Christ is not turning towards punishment. 
It's not turning towards an angry God. Repentance is turning toward the cross, knowing your flesh has been crucified with Christ, and so embracing the acceptance that you have with the Father. And that's why we can look to Isaac. Because he believes that acceptance with the Father is provided for in the Messiah who is to come. Amen? Let's praise him.